Welcome back to the Pete Space. Palette Life Sciences, sponsor of this podcast, is committed to bringing educational tools such as the Pete Space for sharing best practices and compelling conversations across a wide variety of pediatric and VUR topics. Today is the fourth and final episode on our series around bowel and bladder dysfunction in children. So far, we have followed the possible care pathway for a child with BBD. We've heard from a pediatrician, a pediatric urologist, a nurse practitioner who manages BBD clinics. And finally, today, we're speaking with Don McManus, or as he is known by his patients and community as Dr. Mack, an adult pediatric and family psychologist, as well as the clinical director of the Family Therapy Institute located in Santa Barbara, California. He is going to share with us some of the psychosocial aspects surrounding this issue. The content of today's episode is solely the opinion of Dr. Don McManus. Welcome, Dr. McManus, and thanks for joining us today. Thank you so much, Cynthia. Glad to be here. So at the Family Therapy Institute, you work with families dealing with BBD. Would you share with us a little bit about your practice and how common is this topic? For sure, yeah. Well, the institute that I co-direct is a nonprofit. We've been in existence for about 32 years, and I've been a, a psychologist in treating families for 50 years, believe it or not. You know, when you put the data together from a whole bunch of studies, as well as my own experience, the number of kids with bladder issues, you know, combining bedwetting or daytime accidents is a whopping 25% for five-year-olds. It's down to 10% for seven-year-olds. And 3% for 12-year-olds. And there's a statistic out there that about 1% for 17-year-olds and even many college students still have problems with bedwetting. So what these percentages show is that bladder and bowel disorders are not only very common, but they can also become chronic and long-standing or long-lasting. One of the big myths about them is that kids, oh, they'll just automatically grow out of these conditions. But that's definitely not the case. And these kinds of figures can be really uh, helpful to normalize things with kids that I treat. An example is I had a seven-year-old boy in treatment last week, and the typical child at this age doesn't know about percentages. So I don't tell him that 10% of seven-year-olds are affected, but I'll have him think about his classroom and say, you know, three kids out of your class probably wet their beds too. And this can be a very powerful uh, tool to normalize things and puts their problem in perspective. Bedwetting happens like three times more often in boys than in girls, and that on average, you know, girls tend to become dry at night almost a year earlier than boys. And there's also a much higher incidence of elimination problems in kids with ADD. Up to 10 times as many kids with ADD have struggles along these lines. If we factor in kids' personalities or their temperaments, kids who are strong-willed are definitely more prone to having you know, these kinds of challenges and control battles are more likely to happen when parents push the process and try to toilet train their kids too early, you know, when the kids are too young. And as a side note, I I used to teach graduate and undergraduate classes in developmental psychology. And I like to point out some of the really crazy things that we used to believe that have now been refuted by science. And it was was really only a hundred years ago that the most prominent psychologists and parenting experts advocated for potty training of infants at six months old. And uh, you can imagine the kinds of problems that this would cause in families. There are sort of three aspects of readiness that are necessary for toilet training. And one is what we call neurological, that the child's brain is wired up with their bladder. The conceptual leap that they can really understand the whole process of potty training. And last but not least, that they have some sort of motivation to become dry. And lots of kids aren't ready until they're about three years old. Now, switching over to bowel issues, we know that there's been a significant rise in the number of cases of constipation 
constipation with kids. And there's new new clinics springing up all over the country because constipation can happen in really high numbers. Upwards of 30% of kids between the ages of 2 and 10 are chronically constipated. And there's also an important link between bed bedwetting problems and constipation. Many, many kids with bedwetting and urinary incontinence have large masses of poop in their colons that push on their bladders and cause incontinence, even though kids like that might be pooping on a regular basis. So pooping and peeing problems are often related. Not always, but often. These conditions a child has, early intervention is the key. It can be so important in helping the hurtful aspects of these disorders. Well, that leads me to what are some of the, the challenges associated with BBD that these kids face? So, you know, it's interesting because most studies find that the quality of life for both kids and their parents is reduced when a child has bladder issues or bowel issues or, or both. And a child's life is most impacted when it's both conditions together. So this being said, the, the generalizations that I'm about to share aren't necessarily true for any given child. And there are a number of family factors and parenting approaches that can, can make a world of difference. And that's what we'll focus on later. But for kids, you know, there can be dramatic effects on a child's sense of well-being. You know, they'll feel shame and guilt and like a failure because they're disappointing their parents. And they can feel lonely and left out because they're embarrassed and can't have sleepovers with their friends. And, and it's no secret that, you know, at a symbolic level, problems with pooping and peeing are associated with being like a baby. So the stigma about it makes kids ripe for teasing, either at school or home. And an interesting case, I, I'm treating the family of a six-year-old boy now. Now, whose three-year-old sister is trained, but he's not. So you can just imagine, how does that feel? And this particular kid hadn't been able to talk out his feelings, but acted them out instead. He compensated for his bedwitting struggles by being a tough guy. And, you know, as a, as a general rule, people don't feel good about themselves. They have a hard time being kind and respectful to others. So there's also this big shame stigma about this issue. And another family called me in a panic a year ago because their three-and-a-half-year-old daughter would scream incessantly when they tried to get her to leave the house. And the setup for this was that this, this little girl, this poor little girl had to pee really badly one afternoon. They were in the park. The family was in the park, and there was no public restroom and not enough time to get home. So this girl had to pee behind some bushes with her mother's help and encouragement. So there was no shame passed down at all by her family, and nobody had even seen her pee. But from that moment, she was incapable of leaving her house because she was panicked about being away from the home bathroom. Even though her parents were cool with it, she associated leaving the house with the feeling that she had done something terrible by peeing outside. More data moving right along. We, we know that lots of forms of trauma can cause kids to regress or reverse uh, in their ability to be toilet trained. Like about 25% of bedwetting cases are what we call secondary with kids who've been previously been dry and then something happens in their lives. Things like some form of abuse in the family, a stressful divorce can cause it or trigger it. Changing to a different school or home or any form of upset uh, happening in the family can really trigger this kind of stuff. And one really common issue I see in my practice is an older child's regressing in their toilet training related to the birth of a new baby brother or sister. It's also a fact that, you know, the kids with bowel and bladder issues have an even lower quality of life when there's the use of verbal or physical punishment in the home. So that's something definitely to avoid. Finally, for lots of younger kids with bowel dysfunction, they've, they might have had a painful experience while pooping. They got constipated. They're just really straining and they've had some 
really painful kind of thing that leads to anxiety and fear about it that lingers on for months and months. Um, they associate pooping with pain. So then moving into the teen years, and finally, uh, you know, as kids move into adolescence and continue to have bowel and, and bladder disorders, the psychological effects can be even greater. And studies have shown that if we even compare the psychological impact for groups of kids who have a bowel or bladder problem with groups of kids who have any other kind of chronic illness, unfortunately, the kids with these elimination problems have worse quality of life than their peers with other kinds of uh, other kinds of chronic diseases. And especially, you know, when it, when it lasts into the teen years, middle school and high school, you know, surveys are showing that 20 to 40 percent of kids avoid going to the bathroom at all when they're at, 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 in school. I mean, that's just a hard thing to go six hours without going to the bathroom. You know, kids are scared and they're embarrassed and they're freaked out by pooping in school, sometimes even peeing because the bathrooms aren't clean enough. Sometimes there's open stalls or teasing or whatever. So there's a big movement now with parents to try and get get schools to prioritize getting the bathroom together better, you know, create a climate of safety and, and not gross kids out. I know a lot of times the teachers won't let the children go to the restroom. Do you ever talk to schools and places in your community to kind of impact, you know, a relay that this is... This is important. I actually have, yeah, yeah. That's that's uh, it's a big problem because you know schools' budgets are so limited, and the last thing they want to do is put money into the bathroom. You know, it's kind of like, yeah, yeah, but this is really important for all kids, not just kids with elimination challenges. So I would imagine this really impacts the family dynamic at home. For parents, really harmful effects can happen with family life and work life and feelings of anxiety, and and parents can feel really helpless that their child isn't you know growing out of the these kinds of problems. And some of the themes that service for parents of kids with these disorders are around the stigma of the problem and the social isolation. So you can have parents with higher conflict and anxiety and depression. And unfortunately, parents can blame each other or even worse, they blame the child. I had one kid in treatment who was 14 years old, believe it or not, still peeing in the bed, sometimes in his own bed and sometimes in his parents' bed. He'd sneak into their bed in the middle of the night. And what really helped the situation resolve was when I could first work with the parents to resolve their own upsets with each other, first heal the emotional issues that prevented them from getting on the same page. So do you work with the parents and the families separately or separately and together? I'll see people together at first and then I'll split it off. And a lot of times I'll just work with the parents. And if that's insufficient, I'll work to, to some degree with the child individually as well, too. And then sometimes it's family work and work with all of them together. But it, that's those are judgment calls that are based on a lot of experience and certain approaches that we take that have been really uh, evolved and are, and are very helpful. Do you have any pointers or recommendations for parents? I've got a ton, Cynthia. I'll, I'll get to some of the most important ones. So I, I guess one of the most important take-home messages I can say is that the negative impact of childhood problems with bowel and bladder issues can be significantly minimized or reduced through early intervention. So bottom line, get help soon. Another really important issue for families and parents is to learn and understand the importance of mirror neurons. These neurons, or nerve cells, were first discovered in monkeys in 1995, and then after years of research at UCLA, a guy named Marco Acaboni found them in the human brain. So we know we've got about 86 billion neurons, or nerve cells, in our brain, and millions of these are mirror neurons, and they connect to our motor cortexes. So that if you're watching someone raise their hand, as an example, your brain's going to light up in the same area as theirs. But then it was discovered, and this is the big punchline, that these cool little neurons are also highly linked, 
highly linked to the amygdala and the emotional brain. So the bottom line with all this stuff is emotions are contagious. So let alone with family members where the signals between brains are really strong, even in our connection with strangers, our brains are fueling and feeding each other's feelings. So the implications of this is that it's really important in families how we deal with stress and emotions. And progress with potty kind of training and elimination issues can very much be tied to family conflict and stressors. And kids with bowel and bladder issues can also be highly sensitive and affected by this family pain, as in with family, you know, as in with like the couple's conflict that I talked about before. With another family that I work with, the mom and dad weren't quite on the same page with their approach to potty training, and the dad had OCD tendencies, obsessive compulsive kind of stuff. He was really grossed out by his four-year-old daughter's diapers, and he was way too stern with her, and the mom was too permissive, and things only improved with the treatment. It was really mom's alcohol abuse that was also causing a lot of strain in the family. And what we do with families, we, we train parents to be in touch with their own feelings so that they can teach their kids how to name and claim feelings. You know, being sad, mad, scared, hurt, guilty, being able to put words to that is really helpful. And we also teach parents ways of constructively expressing their own frustrations apart from their child so they don't take them out on the kid. And then there's a whole program that I've developed for parents that helps them to set limits with kids in ways that avoid the big power struggles, particularly with, with strong-willed kids. So this leads right into the fact that the mirror neurons are also important with how we parent and direct energy toward a child. And, you know, the slightest bit of frustration for a parent can be really normal when you're trying to potty train your kid. But when your frustrations are felt by your child, their brains are going to react to your feelings, even when these feelings are unspoken or not so manifest. But it's in a way the child's brain is acting like they're being attacked by a wild animal when they feel your frustration. It's their little amygdalas lighting up. It's the seat of the emotional brain. And it can get fired up just like an alarm bell signaling danger. And then finally, you know, one of the most important things that I can share with listeners is that there's any number of what we call family factors that can influence parents' efforts toward either helping or which actually serve to maintain or fuel a child's symptoms. And so no matter what symptoms your child is having, you might want to turn your attention toward an evaluation of what we call these family factors or keys to a happy, loving family, which we've done a lot of research on. You might think about it like going to the doctor and taking a blood test. So let's see, hmm, looks like cholesterol is pretty good, but thyroid levels need attention and that kind of thing. So included in my bio are, are a number of resources that include a link to the website at howsyourfamily.com. And at that site, you'll see a free self-administered test that can help you to learn about your family's strengths and areas where you might want to put some attention. So that's something to check out. That's really valuable, I think. Thank you so much, Dr. McManus, for joining us today. And thank you again to our listeners for joining us this week on The Pete Space. We hope you enjoyed Dr. Mack's perspective and feel free to share while we deliver more pediatric urology-focused content in the coming weeks. There are some great resources at deflux.com. And additionally, you can learn more about our company and products at palatelifesciences.com. 